It's hard enough for people who fled the wildfires in Maui to return to where remains of their homes. Now they've got to reckon with a land laden with toxic chemicals from burned vehicles, plastic water pipes, and more. Coming up, the chemical hazards that can reach well beyond the fire zone. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden is about to welcome the leaders of Japan and South Korea to Camp David, a retreat in the woods of Maryland. The discussions could be heavy, but the setting will be nice. It's just incredibly quiet and peaceful. And I think that's what it lends itself to the diplomatic tone you can achieve there where people can sit down and not be distracted and just talk. Also, after an early exit from the Women's World Cup, the head coach of the U.S. women's national soccer team calls it quits. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The search continues this hour in Maui for victims of the largest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. The confirmed number of lives lost is now up to 111. This morning, officials identified three more deceased victims, all senior citizens from Lahaina. The governor of Hawaii, Josh Green, says large portions of the scorched town have yet to be searched. He projects the casualty figures will continue to climb. The ordeal Maui's residents are facing is all too familiar to those who survived the fire that devastated the California town of Paradise in 2018. Eighty-five people lost their lives in the campfire. The disaster also destroyed 18,000 structures in Paradise. One survivor of that fire, Laura Nelson, describes what she learned in the aftermath of the campfire. Imagine someone that you love and care about died. Times your whole community, you have to retreat. And that's something I do want to express to the people of Maui. You need deep rest. President Biden is expected to visit Maui on Monday. COVID vaccines are deemed highly effective at reducing the risk that children will require urgent or emergency care for COVID-19. That is according to new data released today by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. NPR's Rob Stein has that story. The CDC studied more than 90,000 children ages six months to five years between July 2022 and May 2023 and found that the kids who got two shots of the original vaccines, followed by one bivalent booster, were 80% less likely than unvaccinated kids to require urgent care or end up in the emergency room because of COVID. Kids who only got one or two of the original shots were far less protected. The CDC says the findings underscore the value of keeping kids up to date on their COVID vaccinations. Rob Stein, NPR News. An entire city in Canada's Northwest Territories is being evacuated because of wildfires. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the fire is expected to reach Yellowknife, a territorial capital, by the weekend. The National Weather Service says what is now Hurricane Hillary is expected to continue strengthening through the day. Forecasters expect the storm to weaken on Saturday or Sunday when it reaches colder waters off the Baja Peninsula. But they're still trying to get a better sense of the storm's path and potential strength as it moves north and towards more populated areas. Regardless, forecasters are warning that intense rainfall, wind, and waves are expected in Baja over the next couple days, and in Southern California, Nevada, and Arizona, Sunday and Monday. Nathan Rott, NPR News. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of a Boston-based LGBTQ rights organization is calling on the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Worcester to rescind the new policy before a new policy before the start of the school year. The policy prohibits students and staff in the diocese school from using pronouns, clothing, bathrooms, or locker rooms that do not align with the sex they were assigned at birth. Here's WBR's Fausto Menard. The diocese says the policy was implemented to ensure uniformity throughout its school system. Marion Duddy Burke with Dignity USA says children who identify as transgender or non-binary are more likely to be bullied or depressed. She says this new policy could make things worse. As children do the very important work of identity formation, many are going to question sexual orientation or gender identity, and they have to know that they are going to be respected and loved no matter who they finally determine themselves to be. The diocese says the policy prohibits harassment, threats, or violence against students based on their perceived sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The Massachusetts School Library Association and the American Civil Liberties Union are supporting a bill to prevent books from being removed from public libraries due to political interference. The so-called book ban legislation was filed today in the state Senate. It proposes a review process when someone objects to material in a public library. The local school committee would make the final decision. And candidates for jobs as certified nursing assistants next year will be able to take the state's written certification exam in a language other than English. Quincy State Senator John Keenan pushed for the measure in the new state budget. He says the state shuts out many qualified candidates from jobs as certified nursing assistants because they don't know enough English. One woman, for instance, I can't remember what country she was from, but talked about passing the practical examination without any problems at all and then really struggling to pass the written examination because she um, struggled with English and she clearly had the skills. The law requires Spanish and Chinese written exams to be offered first. Keenan is urging the Department of Public Health to offer more language as soon as possible. It looks like there's a lot of gray out there and should stay that way through this evening. Overnight tonight, some showers holding to the mid to upper 60s tonight. Then tomorrow is looking not so hot. Rain off and on should have strong winds, some thunderstorms as well. May not be hot, but it should be warmer. Temperatures in the mid 80s. And then the weekend, on the other hand, is looking lovely. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The burn zone in Lahaina remains closed off as officials undertake search and recovery. But shortly after the fire, some residents of Lahaina were able to see what was left of their homes. Anthony LaPuenta II found his home reduced to a field of ash. He says the sight was shocking as well as the smell. It smelled a lot of wood camping type of wood, but also a lot of like, chemical smells. Um, if anybody's ever been around like a burning tire or gas, um, you can kind of get a hint. Those chemical odors are one sign of how toxic the entire burn area is, even after the flames have been extinguished. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer is in Maui and has been talking with experts about the risks. Hi, Gabriel. 
Hello. So tell us how critical of a concern are these toxic contaminants right now in the burn zone? Yeah, they're a major concern here, and, and they're one of the reasons why getting people back into Lahaina has gone so slowly. Uh, one factor in this is just how hot the fire burned. Hawaii's governor said it reached 1,000 degrees. Wow. So something that's that hot is not going to burn just wood, but also things like asphalt and, and insulation and plumbing, and that's in addition to all this plastic and rubber and carpet. And what happens when those kinds of materials burn? There's a really big concern about asbestos and lead because much of Lahaina was built more than 50 years ago before we <laughs> stopped using that stuff in our buildings. And there are more nasty chemicals in the smoke from these urban wildfires. Um, I spoke with Amara Holder with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and she's done research into what's in the smoke from urban wildfires versus some that mostly burn trees. We expect to see much higher uh, amounts of compounds like chlorine and nitrogen and metals like lead and arsenic and cadmium. We would expect greater amounts of gases like hydrogen chloride or hydrogen cyanide to be emitted from these types of fires than you would see from a regular old forest fire. And how dangerous are those compounds? Like, could people be harmed just by, say, touching the contaminated ash? Yeah, well, the biggest danger comes from ingesting or, or breathing in the toxic chemicals. Uh -huh. So that means that the really acute risks go way down once the fire's out and the smoke is dissipated. But lots of the emissions that start out as airborne particles and smoke end up settling back down into ash and soot, and they cling to surfaces, they run off into the water. And that means people could be exposed over and over for a really long time, which is exactly what health officials are worried about. A lot of these chemicals are associated with cancer and lung disease, and heavy metals like lead and arsenic can cause heart disease and, and neurological problems, too. And how do you go about cleaning all of that up? Well, it's going to be a huge job. Um, that ash, which blankets everything in Lahaina, and a lot of the soil that it's sitting on might have to be treated as hazardous waste, which could mean packing it into steel drums and shipping it off island for special storage. I mean, my God, that sounds like it could take a really long time. And, and I imagine that must be frustrating for residents who want to go and see what's left. Yeah, I asked Diana Felton about this. She's the former Hawaii state toxicologist who's now part of leadership at the State Department of Health. And she says the burn zone is off limits for good reasons. We completely understand people's urge and it really is a need to get back and see what has become of, of their homes or their businesses. But we also, there is no room for more illness and injury related to this event. We've been speaking with NPR's Gabriel Spitzer. Thank you, Gabriel. You're welcome. These days, America's civic fabric is fraying. From local school board meetings to Congress, shouting often overwhelms real conversations. But there is a place in upstate New York where people are actively resisting that trend. NPR's Brian Mann takes us there. To understand the civic experiment underway in New York's massive Adirondack Park, we have to go back to a time when things were really ugly. In the 1990s, a CBS cameraman captured a violent confrontation. An environmental activist was attacked by a local government leader named Maynard Baker. Go back wherever you come from, but get out of here. Out of our lives and out of our business. The Adirondack Park is six million acres. Small towns here are surrounded by big chunks of heavily regulated land. Historian Phil Terry says the fight over environmental rules turned dangerous. There was an attempt to set the park agency headquarters on fire. One of the park agency staff members had bullets 
flying around his car one day. In a lot of ways, the Adirondacks then resembled America today. Conspiracy theories and threats of violence were commonplace. I had protesters and pickets all over the Adirondacks. Former New York Governor George Pataki, a Republican, lives now in the park. He says the stakes were high. When he took office, huge tracts of privately owned land in the park were being eyed by developers. They wanted to build resorts and waterfront vacation homes. Pataki unveiled an ambitious environmental plan to keep that from happening. Here he is speaking in 2005. This brings our total open space conserved to over 900,000 acres, an area bigger than the entire state of Rhode Island. Pataki says the battle lines then were pretty much like what we see now across the U.S., pro-business versus pro-environment, urban versus rural, people looking for agreement versus those who wanted a fight. He says his message to furious locals was simple. Let's start talking. Give me a chance, and I think we can make this work both for the environment and for the economy. People here say that moment started a gradual shift in the park's culture that took root over the next 20 years, creating an opening for a new generation of activists. Our agenda is simply to have civil discourse. Zoe Smith is an environmental activist who sits on the board of the Adirondack Park Agency. That's the state governing body locals once tried to burn down. She lives here in Saranac Lake, one of the towns inside the park, and volunteers for a group called the Common Ground Alliance that formed to do the slow, hard work of building bridges. There's a lot of, of long conversations that happen, phone calls after hours, and, and I've been there as well, you know, sort of on the ledge. This is too difficult. This relationship is broken. This issue is too hard to face. People here say this local work has been complicated by forces now tearing at America's civil society. The park's small towns backed Donald Trump twice, and voters here have given landslide victories to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Trump ally who frequently amplifies conspiracy theories. In other parts of the U.S., bitter national divisions have shattered communities. But here, local government leaders like Jerry Delaney have chosen to keep talking. I feel I'm a moderate, but oftentimes I'm told I'm very right of moderate. Delaney's a town official, a former logger and corrections officer who describes himself as a Trump voter. He's also emerged as one of the leading pro-development voices working with the Common Ground group. There's no good to tear our communities apart. We're not going to win by fighting. As long as people are listening to us, we still have a chance. Local leaders like Delaney wound up supporting those big land conservation deals. In exchange, small towns got big pots of economic development money and funding for infrastructure. Historian Phil Terry says while America grew more fractious, the Adirondacks found ways to compromise. I think there's been a lot of good faith effort on the part of people on both sides to try to talk things out. Don't yell at each other, talk to each other. Everyone interviewed for this story said the Adirondack experiment has been successful so far, but also messy. They say the peace here often feels fragile, shaken by occasional lawsuits and by angry flare-ups on social media. But Zoe Smith with the Common Ground Alliance says people here keep talking, in part because they know how bad things can be when neighbors turn against neighbors. I think people don't want to go back there. They remember it. When you hear people talk about the, war, the Adirondack Wars and the Adirondack Battles, there are very few people who want to engage in that again. So far, nearly a million acres of wild forest and lakes have been protected here with local buy-in and local input. Makes you wonder what could be done in other parts of the U.S. if people started talking again, rather than making threats and shouting each other down. 
Brian Mann, NPR News in New York's Adirondack Park. North Korea is likely to be a major topic when President Biden hosts his Japanese and South Korean counterparts at Camp David on Friday. On the eve of that summit, the U.S. put a spotlight on North Korea's human rights violations, chairing a Security Council meeting on that subject. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the Security Council must continue to speak out against injustices in North Korea, known as the DPRK. She says human rights violations there have an impact on regional security. Colleagues, we cannot have peace without human rights, and the DPRK is a case in point. This was the first such meeting in six years. China's ambassador objected to discussing matters that he says should not be on the Security Council's agenda. Russia's ambassador called it a shameless attempt by the U.S. to advance its political agenda. But one North Korean defector described how the lack of human rights in the country is fueling North Korea's illicit weapons program. Ishak Kim says at a young age, he was forced to work in the fields, and most of the grain he grew went to the military. Military. The government turns our blood and sweat into luxurious life for the leadership and missiles that blast our hard work into the sky. He told the Security Council that the government is spending its money on weapons instead of feeding its people. We used to think that the money spent on just one missile could feed us for three months. But the government doesn't care and is only concerned with maintaining their power. U.N. officials say that COVID-19 restrictions have made matters worse. Volker Turk, who's the U.N.'s top human rights official, says he's now worried about the fate of thousands of North Koreans who could be forced back into the country and subjected to torture and detention. I therefore urge all states to refrain from forcibly repatriating North Koreans and to provide them with the required protections and humanitarian support. He didn't mention China by name, but many defectors have been living there, and deportations were halted when North Korea closed off the border at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Diplomats are worried that the deportations may soon resume. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this gray afternoon. The Dow took a tumble today. It fell more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent. The NASDAQ lost about one-and-a-quarter percent. Massachusetts needs more housing, and a new report from the website Construction Coverage says it's building at a slower pace than most other states. The study ranks Massachusetts 41st in construction of new homes, The report says the state authorized nearly six new units of housing per 1,000 existing units last year. That's about 17,700 new homes and a gain of nearly 4% over 2020. The states that are building the most new homes include Utah, Idaho, Colorado, and Texas and Florida. It's 419. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. 
Red Sox and Nationals are playing their third and final game of their series right now in Washington. Top of the second, no score so far. In the forecast, maybe some showers overnight tonight, holding to the mid to upper 60s. Tomorrow should be rainy, rain off and on all day, could have a strong wind, some thunderstorms too. Should be up around the mid 80s though, and then for the weekend, temperatures around the 80s with some sunshine both days. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Two blocks north of Baltimore's Penn Station, there's a movie house now known as the Charles Theater. Hello. In a previous era, this building housed a venue called the Famous Ballroom. There were plastic stars and plastic moons and plastic clouds in the ceiling. There was canopy that looked like a circus tent. It was a dance hall. From the mid-1960s into the early 80s, nearly every Sunday from 5 p.m. onward, the famous ballroom was reserved for concerts put on by Baltimore's Left Bank Jazz Society. These were major shows. They brought in Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. We would do Art Blakey one week, Count Basie the following week, Hard Silver the next week, Lee Morgan. In the lobby, I met John Fowler, a charter member of the Left Bank Jazz Society. I'm not a mathematician, but that's somewhere around 700 concerts. They got so many big-time artists to come to Baltimore because, well, for one, it was very convenient by train. The Left Bank also insisted the artists got paid for their work on time. One of the things that we prided ourselves on, nobody ever left Baltimore without their money. And to hear John Fowler tell it, the vibe was unmatched. There were about 100 tables set out. Sometimes families brought entire Sunday dinners. Fried chicken, crab cakes, homemade potato salad, fifths of liquor. You could bring everything with you. We had a lady who sold baked goods, cake, pies, cookies, all of that. We sold beer, potato chips, and pretzels. That helped bring in an audience that was both young and old, black and white, unusually diverse for its time. They're jazz fans, we don't give a damn. You know, they could be green. Long as you got the price of admission, we don't care. A diverse and discerning audience. Gimmicks didn't work here in Baltimore. You had to play. When you got a standing ovation in the ballroom, you have really played your heart out. For the volunteers of the Left Bank Jazz Society, that was enough motivation to keep promoting shows in Baltimore for about 40 years in total. Some happened at other venues, but nothing was quite like a Sunday at the famous ballroom. And just know that there are 800 people in here who are having the time of their life. There's five guys on the stage who are playing some of the best music in the history of the world. And the fact that you had a small part in helping that to happen. The thing is, a lot of those concerts were recorded, mostly for the private archives of the Left Bank and for the artists themselves. Until a few years ago, 
only a handful of them were released as commercial albums by record labels. But hardcore jazz fans knew. The tapes were there. And one of those fans is a record producer who grew up less than an hour away from Baltimore in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. It's truly historic, an amazing story. Zeb Feldman has made a career out of finding archival records of jazz greats. For him, the raw material can't just be good, it has to be great. It's like fire on gasoline. I leap out of bed in the morning. I'm constantly researching with archives all around the world, trying to find the special recording, not just any recording, but something that's really meaningful. Feldman makes the greatest of his finds into deluxe limited edition albums. He's done this for over a decade with a number of record labels and has already put out three recordings from the Left Bank archives. This year, he's helped produce three more albums, and each was recorded, at least in part, at the famous ballroom in Baltimore. We're unearthing history here, but and he loves it. I do. Feldman, Fowler, and I sat down, feet away from where these iconic shows used to happen, to talk about these new releases. First up, a recording of the legendary saxophonist Sonny Stitt from the fall of 1973. This is a, a really remarkable tape. Sonny Stitt was a pioneer one of the most amazing gunslingers, if you will, in jazz with dexterity and the way he played, and he was a master. Sonny Stitt being a local artist, for his children, the Left Bank performances were really important, and this was the chance that they would have an opportunity to go see their father play, so become a family outing. So these shows are really special, and it's a really testament of the genius of Sonny Stitt. We booked him on nine different occasions. Nine different occasions, yes. wow. Yes. So what do you remember about Sonny Stitt as a performer, as someone who was in those spaces? Unmatchable. When he came to town, every local horn player in the city showed up. They all stood at the back of the ballroom listening to the master. In Baltimore, you say Sonny Stitt, you got a packed audience. Feldman takes another newly pressed LP out of his bag. A recording of the organist Shirley Scott and her band from 1972. This is a tour de force performance from one of the pioneers of soul jazz, if you want to call it that. She was a legendary organ player. This performance from 1972 captures her live. I think Shirley Scott is one of the greats. I don't think we get a chance to talk about her as much, so I feel like Why do you releases... think that is, though? Why do you think that someone like a Shirley Scott is not as well known? Women caught hell back in the day, especially in jazz. And if you stood up for yourself, you know, you got that bad reputation as being hard to deal with. You could be as, as good on your instrument as, as the next guy, but because he was a man, he got better treatment than you got. The third recording that's coming out was made in the mid-60s when pianist Walter Bishop Jr. came to Baltimore. We all talked about how he too was an undersung master from the bebop era. Really, we talked about a lot of the giants who came through this lobby. There were many, many stories. 
It was only after that that John Fowler got up and pointed out where exactly the famous ballroom used to be. The ceiling of this building would have been the flooring of the ballroom. So the ballroom would have been all the way up there, yes. above the ceiling that we are seeing yes. today. And slightly to the left. Fowler told me he'd only been here one other time since the early 80s when the famous ballroom fell into disrepair. The high ceilings, movie posters, and popcorn machines that we saw gave no hint of the legendary Left Bank concerts that once happened here. And this part of Baltimore City has changed too. It's great to be here, but there's nothing here that would kick in that memory other than the address 1717 North Charles Street. I mean, it's completely, there was no crepe restaurant next door to the ballroom when we had the concerts here. So there's very little other than the fact that I know what happened upstairs. John Fowler knows what happened upstairs. He was there. He hopes that as these recordings are released, more people will be able to experience what happened here too. The new albums are from Sonny Stitt, Shirley Scott, and Walter Bishop Jr. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, a rural northern California town is evacuating residents as it did last year because of wildfires. Also ahead, contemplating parenthood in a time of climate change. And coming up on Marketplace tonight, artificial intelligence will likely change the way we work, but it's not the first time new tech has affected workers. Most jobs aren't automated away completely. Uh, Sometimes they shrink. There are fewer newspaper jobs than there used to be. There are fewer travel agents than there used to be, but they also evolve. I'll look back at the history of automation and what it might tell us about our future coming up on Marketplace, which starts tonight at 6.30. No score yet in Washington, D.C., where the Red Sox and Nationals are playing a matinee for their third and final game. And overnight tonight, look for more showers. Shouldn't be a lot of rain, but just enough to make it damp and messy, holding to the mid to upper 60s overnight. For tomorrow, rain off and on all day, a gusty wind, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Should be warm, though, temperatures finally reaching the mid-80s. It's 4.30. President Biden invested billions of dollars in green energy. Much of that funding has brought jobs to Republican strongholds. Nine of the ten top states to be the biggest beneficiaries are either red or purple states. So are Republican lawmakers warming to the Biden climate bill? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he believes President Biden's signature legislative accomplishment, the Inflation Reduction Act, will be the central issue Democrats can hold on to in 2024. To contrast with Republicans, NPR's Deidre Walsh sat down with the Majority Leader. Schumer used the one-year anniversary of what's been dubbed the IRA to make the case that linking climate change efforts to jobs will boost the economy in both red and blue states. He admitted voters may not personally feel the benefits yet, but they will by elections next fall. You know, it takes a while. So they're looking six months back, and six months back, inflation was worse. Six months back, uh, the economy was less robust. But six months from now, 
they're going to see a much better economy and they're going to see costs going down. The majority leader predicted a strong Democratic tide in the next election, as his party holds a narrow Senate majority and will be defending seats in red states like Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. In Southern California, several law enforcement agencies, including the Los Angeles Police Department and County Sheriff's Office, announced the creation of a joint retail theft task force today. This comes after several high-profile flash mob-style robberies have been reported across the Los Angeles area, including one last weekend at a Nordstrom store in East Los Angeles. That's where more than $300,000 in luxury items were stolen. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna says these kinds of crimes have been a problem in the area for some time. We're not only focused on the individuals who are walking into these stores and committing the crimes that we see on video, but if you are supporting them logistically, either by uh, being a driver, harboring them, uh, buying merchandise, selling... This is NPR. Police are investigating a theft of antiquities at the British Museum in London, where officials there say they're, they've tightened security. We have more from NPR's Lauren Freyer. The stolen items include gold, jewelry, and gems. They date back from the 15th century BCE up to the 19th century CE. None of them had been on display recently. They'd been in a storeroom. And that's where museum officials say they went missing. Other items left behind were damaged. They believe this happened sometime before this year, possibly over what they said was a significant period of time. Museum trustees were notified earlier this year, but it only became public now. One member of staff has been fired, and the museum says it's taking legal action against them, but no arrests have been made. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. The world's largest retailer, Walmart, is reporting stronger-than-expected sales and profits in the second quarter. Sales rose nearly 6 percent compared to a year ago as more shoppers were willing to open their wallets, a sign consumer spending remains resilient. Walmart's results capped a week of major earnings reports in the retail sector, uh, raising uh, its outlook higher for the rest of the year. As for stocks on Wall Street, the Dow was down about 290 points today. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 157 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate YouTube for suspected violations of child privacy laws. The New York Times reported today that YouTube and its parent company, Google, may have used targeted ads to collect children's data and send it to data brokers and third-party companies without parental consent. In a letter to the FTC today, Markey wants the agency to determine how the information may have been used and punish YouTube for any violations. Boston Cardinal Sean O'Malley is asking parishioners to hold a special second collection for the Diocese of Honolulu as the church tries to help victims of the deadly Maui wildfires. The cardinal says the money will help rebuild lives and restore hope. O'Malley is encouraging the Boston parishes to hold a collection on one of the next three weekends. In the forecast, looks like tonight should feature more of the same overcast skies, light rain from time to time, dipping to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, warmer and wetter, should be up around 83 degrees, some windswept rain, thunderstorms. The weekend, though, is looking dry and nice. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. 
Red Sox scored down in Washington, D.C. The score is now one to nothing at the top of the third as they play the Nationals. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. President Biden is hosting the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David tomorrow, the famous presidential retreat in the woods of Maryland. NPR's Asma Khalid reports on why they're being invited now and why Camp David has such a storied history in American diplomacy. The United States, Japan, and South Korea have never held a standalone summit like this, in major part because Japan and South Korea have had decades of disagreements. That stems primarily from Japan's occupation of Korea back at the early part of the 20th century. That's Jeffrey Hornan. He focuses on East Asia at the RAND Corporation. Historically, relations have never been great. But there's a window now. Ties between Seoul and Tokyo have been improving. Plus, here at home, there's a president eager to strengthen alliances and counter China's influence in the region. On Friday, the three leaders will pledge to improve security cooperation and issue something they're calling the Camp David Principles. A senior Biden administration official told me Camp David is seen as a place to signal intimacy and importance. That goes back to World War II and the camp's first foreign visitor, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Alison Mann is a historian with the State Department. In 1943, Churchill visited, and he and Roosevelt spent a great deal of time out in the woods fishing, talking, and really that was when they mapped out what the future of the world would look like at the end of the war. FDR called this place Shangri-La. It was his rustic paradise, 60 miles outside of Washington. But when Dwight Eisenhower came into office, he renamed it. He thought Shangri-La was too fancy of a name for a Kansas farm boy. He added picnic tables, outdoor barbecues, and even a bomb shelter. And in 1959, during the Cold War, he invited the leader of the Soviet Union. Mr. Khrushchev will visit Washington for two or three days. The objective that Eisenhower had in inviting Khrushchev specifically to Camp David was to use the beautiful scenery and a more relaxed atmosphere to really get to know Khrushchev. There's no street traffic, no airplanes overhead. Michael Giorgione is one of the few people who's lived there year-round. He was the former naval commanding officer at Camp David. There's no one there unless it's the president or the staff who's invited. And it's just incredibly quiet and peaceful. And I think that's what lends itself to the, the, the diplomatic tone you can achieve there where people can sit down and not be distracted and just talk. It's why, in 1978, former President Jimmy Carter invited the leaders of Israel and Egypt to the camp to broker a peace deal after decades of violence and war. When we first arrived at Camp David, the first thing upon which we agreed was to ask the people of the world to pray that our negotiations would be successful. 
The Camp David Accords, as they came to be known, cemented this wooded cabin site as a place to forge friendships with foreign leaders. Here's Michael Giorgione again. If I were invited to Camp David, I think if I were world leader, I'd rather I'd value that morning or the White House. It's like bringing someone into your family room. Former President Donald Trump preferred to use his own properties for events. For the last eight years, no world leader has been invited to the family room. Jeff Hornung with the Rand Corporation says that is part of what makes this meeting tomorrow so significant. The symbolism of Camp David is important because the leaders of Japan and South Korea know that This is something special. You need to be invited. The president only does this on certain occasions. It's a sign Biden is trying to prioritize Asia. A senior Biden administration official told me they'll announce plans tomorrow for more military exercises, a new hotline among all three countries, and an agreement to consult each other in crises. Asma Khalid, NPR News. There's a big shakeup in U.S. soccer today. The head coach of the women's team is out after a disappointing and early exit this month from the Women's World Cup. Vlako Antonovsky has led the squad since 2019, but he has struggled to get the world's top-ranked team back to the dominance it had enjoyed for years. Joining us now to talk about what happened and why is NPR's Ayana Archie. Hi, Ayana. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So so let me ask you, when Vlako Andonovsky took over this program four years ago, there were high hopes, right? Like, how did we get to today with him leaving? Yes. So in 2019, he took over for Coach Jill Ellis, who had just led the U.S. women's national team to its second consecutive Women's World Cup title. He was a popular and well-liked coach at the Pro League here, the NWSL. Many of the stars of the 2019 tournament were still on the team. People like Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, Becky Sauerbrunn, Rose Lavelle, Julie Ertz, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has dominated on the world stage and been ranked number one for years. But Andonovsky actually didn't have any international coaching experience, and that began to show, certainly during the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Uh-huh. The U.S. managed only to win a bronze medal despite being heavily favored to win another Olympic gold. Okay, so remind us what happened at the Women's World Cup that ultimately did lead to his exit. Again, the U.S. has been ranked number one for years. They've been a fixture on the global stage and at the Women's World Cup, having either won the tournament or played for the title every four years. But coming into this tournament, the U.S. just wasn't the same team. The Americans had lost several key players to injuries, including their captain and defensive star Becky Sauerbrunn. Mallory Swanson, who had begun to sparkle early this year, scoring goal after goal, was hurt and could not travel to the tournament. And it's clear that around the world, there's more parity in the women's game. Other countries are putting more emphasis into their women's programs, focusing on player development and crucially putting more money into it. But I know that coming into the tournament, there was some grumbling already, right? Yes, there was certainly concern. Of the 23 players that Andonovsky brought to the Women's World Cup, 14 of them were making their debuts. The team just didn't have a chance to gel. They Mm. didn't play as many matches in the lead-up, nor was there as much pre-tournament training as in previous years. Some of the players, like Alex Morgan and Julie Ertz, were asked to play in slightly different ways. In the opening game against Vietnam, the U.S. won 3-0. That result was widely seen as disappointing. Four years ago, they defeated Thailand 13-0 in that opener. In their next game, the U.S. tied Netherlands 1-1 and didn't score against Portugal. And of course, in the round of 16 knockout game against Sweden, the U.S. also didn't score. So you've got an offensive juggernaut that only managed a total of four goals in four games. 
Andonovsky was criticized for not using enough substitutes and clinging to game strategies and not adapting during the tournament. Mm, Okay, well then, who is going to lead the U.S. women's national team now? Well, for now, it's Twyla Kilgore who is taking over as interim head coach. She was one of Andonovsky's assistants, but this is just a temporary posting. She'll guide the team during a pair of friendly matches next month. The U.S. is a premier team, and the coaching position is a dream job. Among the names already being mentioned are current England coach Serena Wiegmann. She has England in the finals this year and led the Netherlands to the finals four years ago against the U.S. Tony Gustafsson is another name mentioned. He coached Australia into the semifinals of the Women's World Cup. And finally, Laura Harvey, who interviewed for the job in 2019. She's a three-time coach of the year in the NWSL and has won multiple championships with Arsenal in England. That is NPR's Ayana Archie. Thank you so much, Ayana. No problem. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In The Quickening, author Elizabeth Rush documents her voyage to Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. It's been called the Doomsday Glacier because if it were to fall apart, Thwaites could cause catastrophic sea level rise. Woven into this story of climate science is a reflection on parenthood and what it means to bring a child into this world. NPR's Julie Deppenbrock reports. In The Quickening, Elizabeth Rush offers us two narratives. One, a planet reeling from climate change. The other, a little life beginning. Here's Rush reading from her book. The year I go to Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is also the year I decide to try to grow a human being inside of my body. It's the year of becoming two, me and you. The year we all get on that boat, my shipmates and I, the year we sail past 73 degrees south to the untouched edge of the weights, is also just another year in which the ice lets go, a little more this time. Rush has been writing about climate change and sea level rise for more than a decade. She says she had grown accustomed to a certain degree of uncertainty. Like, are we going to have three feet of sea level rise or six feet of sea level rise by century's end? We don't really know. But then Rush learned about Thwaites, how it's breaking apart, and what that could mean for the planet. I kind of wanted to see the source of this great instability of this potential for, you know, even more accelerated or catastrophic sea level rise firsthand. So I applied to a really cool grant through the National Science Foundation that sends an artist or a writer to the ice, and I was very lucky to receive it. Her mission set out from Chile at the end of January. It would take close to a month to arrive at Thwaites, crossing the Southern Ocean, the Drake Passage, some of the wildest seas in the world. We arrived on one morning in February, and it was like a solid wall of ice with some rumpling and some slumping and some cracking. But it was, you know, it kind of looked like the wall in Game of Thrones. To go on this expedition, Rush had postponed her plans to have a child by almost a year. I feel like I carried my desire to have a child onto the boat with me, and it came with me to Antarctica. Rush says that choice about whether to have a child is so deeply personal. For many people, 
this moment of facing a certain kind of end time, which we most certainly are facing, like worlds are ending all around us. I think that that feels inherently overwhelming and scary. But when asked where she finds a sense of determination in a time of climate crisis, Rush says this. There are many people on this planet who have lived through many different kinds of endings before. I think of the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas. Like, their worlds have been ending for five centuries. And at some level, of course, climate change is a different scale of transition. But I also think that these kinds of earth transformations have happened before, and there's a lot of wisdom in how to survive them. Elizabeth Rush, now a mother, says she takes heart in that. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in the bottom of the third inning in Washington, D.C. Washington has just tied the score with the Red Sox 1-1. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Celtics' schedule for the upcoming season is out today. They open October 25th in New York against the Knicks. This is the first time or the first year the NBA will host an in-season tournament. It starts November 10th for the Celtics. Boston will compete against the Brooklyn Nets, Toronto Raptors, Orlando Magic, and Chicago Bulls. The winner moves on to the next round in December. Our last Sound On Music Festival of the summertime at City Space will be one week from today, Thursday, August 24th. It'll headline electropop singer FC. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. 71 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.49. It's been a year since President Biden signed major legislation to help address climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest climate policy, climate action that the U.S. government has ever taken. We'll take a look at the Inflation Reduction Act and how it's reshaping the American economy and the fight against climate change. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. A record heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is prompting fire managers to bump up the national preparedness level a notch. More than two dozen large fires are now burning in the region, many sparked by dry thunderstorms. One in rural Northern California is forcing evacuations in the same forest where four people died in a wildfire this time last year. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports this comes after what had been a slow start to the fire season on the mainland. At the National Interagency Fire Center here in Idaho, federal fire managers are monitoring giant screens in a NASA-like control room as they deploy air tankers, hotshot crews, and other resources around the West right now. 
Yeah, so some of the footage that you're seeing here are smoke detection cameras. So 21st century live cams stationed in forests in the northwest that Megan Connery says are now suddenly vulnerable to major wildfire ignitions. Connery is the Federal Bureau of Land Management's deputy director for fire and aviation. Above average temperatures, dry conditions, and uh, some expectations for gusty winds over the next few days. So big potential there. The Northwest and far northern California are again baking in triple-digit heat right now and extremely low humidity. Dreaded thunderstorms have been bringing a lot of wind and new ignitions from lightning strikes, but very little rain. And yet for context, so far here on the mainland, only about 1.6 million acres have burned this season. Megan Connery says that's only about a third of the 10-year average. And with climate change, things feel pretty flipped upside down right now. It's the middle of August, and yet the worst wildfires so far this year have happened in the tropics and near the Arctic. While Canada and Hawaii have had an abnormal and tragic fire season, the United States mainland and Alaska have enjoyed a little bit of peace and quiet. This all comes with a big asterisk after a week like this. Near record or record high temperatures have been recorded this week from Boise to Vancouver, British Columbia. In Portland, a high of 108 set an all-time record for August. And on fires, this means crews can no longer count on cooler overnight temperatures, where the flames used to die down a bit so they could get an upper hand. But despite this heat wave, UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain says most of the West is still benefiting from a big winter and cool, wet spring. This does not look like an August 2020 repeat, despite some rumors. The level of lightning activity is much lower. The size and the behavior of the fires is smaller and less aggressive for the most part so far. In August of 2020, deadly wildfires ignited in Oregon forests, and weeks later over Labor Day, one mostly wiped out an entire farming town in eastern Washington. A sign of the times, maybe, Swain and other climate scientists are now shifting their attention from wildfires to Hurricane Hillary, which could bring heavy rain and mudslides to fire-scarred mountains in Southern California. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. While vacationing in California, NPR's Chad Campbell could hear sea lions barking from an island about two miles from his house. He wondered what they could be saying to each other. So he asked an expert to speculate. It could be announcing that there's really yummy food over here. It could be, hey, look at me, look at me. Um, It could be just wanting to be social. They enjoy being together. Adam Ratner is the Associate Director of Conservation Education at the Marine Mammal Center. As you can hear, they're constantly engaging with each other. It's just one way that they are able to really tell each other what's on their minds. Ratner says this is the world's largest hospital for marine mammals. Every year, they treat hundreds of sick, injured, and malnourished animals that are rescued along the coast. The center also makes house calls to treat animals that don't fit into a volunteer's pickup truck. We've gone out and actually administered medication to animals that have been hit by boats. We've disentangled whales that have been caught in trash, so we can still give those really large animals that second chance they deserve. The Marine Mammal Center has been here in Sausalito, California for almost 50 years, near the Golden Gate Bridge on the Marin Headlands. It's not easy to find, but annually more than 100,000 visitors make their way to this upstairs viewing deck. We can see a few dozen fenced-in pens, each with a small private swimming pool. When I visited, the hospital was caring for 65 patients, 
elephant seals, otters, harbor seals, and their most common patient, the California sea lion. We've got around 25 of them at the hospital, including this big guy right in the front row, an adult male named Tagozi that we rescued from Monterey County, suffering from a disease called leptospirosis, a bacterial infection of the kidneys. Tagozi is not barking, just laying quietly in his pen. He is still hungry though, and it's nearly feeding time, so we head downstairs. Our first stop is the fish kitchen, where volunteers are preparing today's lunch for the patients. Ratner says the animals can go through a thousand pounds of fish every day. For the young pups, we can make them different fish smoothies, whatever they might need to start building up that strength to eat food on their own. The Marine Mammal Center is a nonprofit organization funded completely by donations. Its staff is supplemented by more than a thousand active volunteers, including Giancarlo Rulli who is now the center's spokesperson. We have volunteers as young as 15 on our youth crew, and we have volunteers that are in their 90s. We could not do the work that we do every day without them. They're contributing upwards of 150,000 hours every single year to our operations. It's literally an army of volunteers. We follow two of those volunteers as they prepare to feed Tagozi, the adult male sea lion suffering from leptospirosis. Here's Adam Ratner again. He's clearly ill, he's got a disease, but he knows how to eat fish. So all we're gonna do is throw the fish into the water, let him chase after it, and that's gonna be his lunchtime feed, essentially. So got around five pounds of fish just at this meal alone. So as an adult male, he's weighing over 300 pounds. Still could gain some weight though. About 25,000 animals have been through the hospital since it first opened, and Ratner says every one of them gets a unique name. But why Tagozi? And who gets to choose? It's actually the person out on the beach, the member of the public typically, that finds the animal that calls us, that gets to name them. They just have to be really creative with the naming more than anything else. So I don't know exactly what the meaning of that was, but it was certainly meaningful to the person who found him on the beach. Does that mean give me some more fish? It could be get out of my pen now, you've done your part. It could be any number of things, but we know the second that he gets that clean bill of health, he's gonna be back out in the wild with all of his friends. And that's exactly what happened. Thanks to the care he received at the Marine Mammal Center, Tagozi made a full recovery. Earlier this month, he and his fellow patient, Culey, were released back into the Pacific. Chad Campbell, NPR News, Sausalito, California. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This NPR member station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening today. We want to hear from you. Take the WBUR listener survey and tell us how we're doing, what you'd like to hear more of or maybe less of. Just tell us at wbur.org slash survey and let us hear your voice. Thanks a lot. More gray this evening, maybe some showers tonight, holding on to the mid to upper 60s. Tomorrow's looking distinctly lousy. Rain off and on all day. Could have a strong wind, some thunderstorms too. At least, though, it should be warm with temperatures in the mid-80s. And then for the weekend, it's looking gorgeous. This is 90.9 WBUR, 71 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukrainians are suffering the trauma of war. Lives have been lost. Families have become refugees. The collective mental health crisis in the country coming up on this Thursday, the 17th of August. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the toll of the Maui wildfires is enormous. But even amid the destruction, there are stories of hope. I've seen so many people in the areas of the island that were not affected step up in a way that makes me really proud to be part of this community. Coming up, one woman's effort to reunite a family that had been separated. And the popularity of the show Suits on Netflix reveals how the workers' strikes are intensifying the flow of viewers to streaming services. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. As the death toll rises from the wildfires on Maui, Hawaii's governor is pledging to protect local landowners. Governor Josh Green says he has instructed the state attorney general to work toward a moratorium on land transactions in Lahaina, the historic community that was destroyed by the fires, although Green says the move will likely face legal challenges. Ukraine will not receive American F-16 fighter jets for combat, at least until next year. Hannah Palomarenko reports from Kyiv that for now, Ukrainian pilots are only being trained on the aircraft. In late May, U.S. President Joe Biden approved Ukrainian training on F-16s. These jets were supposed to become part of Ukraine's air defense and help repel Russian missile and drone attacks. Air Force spokesman Yuri Ignat said they had high hopes for the aircraft, but now are not expecting to have them this fall or winter. However, he adds, the training for both pilots and engineers has moved forward. Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs says that the matter of the F-16s is being worked on very actively. According to him, the Ukrainian president has meetings and talks every day this week to speed up this process, so he expects good news. 
For NPR News, I'm Hanna Palomarenko in Kyiv. New data from Syracuse University finds a number of immigration cases being processed in court is on the rise again. Texas Public, uh, Public Radio's Marianne Navarro reports that cases initially dropped after the end of the pandemic-era policy, Title 42. Data from the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse show more than 40,000 notices to appear, or NTAs, were issued weekly before Title 42 expired. Although an influx of immigration court cases was expected after Title 42 ended, NTAs dropped to 25,000. But new data analyzed by TRAC shows the drop was short-lived. Cases arriving to court climbed back up to 39,000 by the end of July. Total NTAs issued by the Department of Homeland Security also increased by 12.6 percent. TRAC says it's unclear whether the upward trend in court filings will continue to climb or if they'll level off. I'm Maria Navarro in San Antonio. The U.S. Census Bureau proposing to continue conducting a national survey about how COVID-19 is affecting people around the country as NPR's Hansi Long reports. If you've received a text message or an email from the Census Bureau about a COVID-19 survey sometime over the past three years, you've probably heard of the Household Pulse Survey. The Bureau has been using it to get a sense of how the country's doing during this pandemic, including how people have received at-home COVID tests, whether it's been hard to pay for food and housing, and people's mental health. The White House's Office of Management and Budget approved this experimental online survey to run through the end of this October. Now the Bureau is proposing to continue collecting responses to help government officials better figure out people's needs. Public comments are due by mid-October. Anzi Luong, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Cambridge-based research organization finds 6% of workers who got COVID continued to receive medical care one year after they were infected. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute found that on average, those workers who developed long COVID had symptoms for 18 months and received more than 20 weeks of disability benefits and about $29,000 in medical care. The institute says the study expands on research from early in the pandemic. A task force to address gun violence in Boston is focusing on parts of the city where shootings have occurred the most. The Gun Violence Reduction Management Team has had its first meeting. It includes representatives from the mayor's office, police and community and health care partners. Isaac Yablo is the mayor's senior advisor for community safety. Four percent of city streets account for 100 percent of community violence. We looked at data from 2018 to 2022. And so it's a really small amount of the city that does experience, you know, the majority of the violence. So we do focus on these these opportunities only. Yablo says the task force wants to address the root causes of violence. He also says they will coordinate prevention efforts and reinstitute a street outreach team. Federal forecasters are predicting above-average temperatures for New England this fall. Dan Collins is a meteorologist with the National Climate Prediction Center. He says that's mostly due to an overall warming climate. In the region of the Northeast, at this time of year, the trends, the changes in temperature over recent decades are strongly positive. It's a significant factor in the outlook for September, October, and November. Last month was the fourth warmest July on record in Massachusetts. Globally, it was the hottest July ever recorded. In the bottom of the fourth inning right now, Red Sox and Nationals are still tied 1-1 in Washington, D.C. Rain clouds are going nowhere soon. They should stick around overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s overnight. And then for tomorrow, could be a wind-driven rain, some thunderstorms, with temperatures making it all the way to about 83 degrees tomorrow. The weekend is looking a lot different. Should be dry and nice, with temperatures in the upper 70s to low 80s. 71 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Ukraine can calculate the agony of war in many ways. Lives lost, homes destroyed, families turned into refugees. But there's also trauma that is harder to measure, the mental health crisis the war has inflicted. Men and women, young and old, soldiers and civilians are all trying to cope. And Pierre's Greg Myrie reports from Kyiv. How are you? In Ukraine, this simple question is much more than a casual conversation starter. It's an invitation to express how you're coping with the war. This question become like a form of love, act of love, and we ask about it because we understand that it's like a part of our inner therapy. Helena Haleba is a curator of a large art exhibit featuring scores of works created by Ukrainians since the full-scale Russian invasion 18 months ago. The paintings, sketches, sculpture, and video are on display at Ukrainian House, a sprawling cultural center in Kyiv. The exhibit, called How Are You?, goes well beyond art. It wants visitors thinking and talking about their mental health. Haleba reads words she wrote, which are on the wall at the exhibit. We have changed and adapted to the realities of the war. Psychologists say that this is uh, required to accept the current reality of war because remaining in constant tension and states of shock and uh, stress is counterproductive in the long run. The wife of President Volodymyr Zelensky, Olena Zelenska, leads this national How Are You campaign. She talked about it in a recent podcast. She says the tone of the program is kind and friendly, not paternalistic. This is important, she notes, because some Ukrainians are very wary of raising mental health issues. This can be traced directly to the Soviet era, when the government often claimed political dissidents had psychiatric problems and locked them up in mental institutions. More Ukrainians are seeking help, says psychologist Oksana Korolovich. She adds that many therapists like herself are being overwhelmed with requests for treatment. And for Korolovich, the war's trauma is personal. She lost her husband to a Russian missile strike last year, just days after he joined the military. Ukrainians have been living in a permanent state of bereavement. When I was experiencing bereavement, I lived through the experience with other widows who also lost their husbands. She's also been surprised by the way the war has generated responses she did not expect. Anecdotally, she says, more married patients are now coming to her saying they want a divorce. Also, some Ukrainians have been emboldened by the way the country has responded to the invasion. In some cases, they've shaken off past feelings of helplessness. We are learning how to get out of this position as a victim. We are learning how to ask for help. A recently formed Ukrainian company called Anima is trying to nudge this process forward. 
Roman Havrish is a co-founder. I, I just wanted to, uh, to bring it uh, to wider uh, public uh, to diagnose depression and anxiety as widespread problems. Havrish and his business partner, neuroscientist Serhi Danilov, have created a rapid online test for screening both civilians and soldiers. A person sits in front of a computer as images appear in rapid succession, two at a time, side by side. One image is mundane, an empty chair or a desk. The other is graphic and often disturbing, a malnourished child, a dead body on the battlefield, a cobra about to strike. The sharply contrasting images appear for just a second and then are replaced by two more. By measuring eye movements to the millisecond, the test seeks to determine a person's unguarded reaction. You can't lie with your eyeball. Uh, we, we track it. We have those uh, tiny milliseconds windows where you don't control consciously your eye, and we track it. The test provides a score from 0 to 100. They say the higher the score, the more likely a person may have anxiety or depression. They emphasize this isn't a diagnosis. They compare it to a blood pressure monitor you might use at home. If you consistently get a high reading, you may want to seek treatment. People can Google us uh, easily and uh, come to the platform and test themselves. But we also distribute it through military psychologists and hospitals that are working with military personnel to help them diagnose incoming patients. The two founders of the project cite one battalion that used the test for several months to screen troops. During this time, 40 of the 600 soldiers were temporarily taken out of combat roles. Most returned after several days, though a few were reassigned to non-combat positions. This is just one of several approaches. Dr. Vladislav Sinyahovsky is a military psychiatrist. If we have a quite intensive battle, we understand that we need to make decompression or debriefing for our soldiers. This includes a dozen or so troops in peer-to-peer -peer discussions after the fighting is over. Inside of this group, we are discussing the most traumatic uh, events during battle. We found a lot of confirmations that it's, it's very useful for mental health. It's the first step for treatment. Sinyahovsky says preliminary data suggests around 15 percent of Ukrainian troops suffer from post-traumatic stress, a figure roughly in line with studies of U.S. troops who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oksana Korolovich, the psychologist, believes the figure is even higher for Ukraine's civilians. But she also sees some encouraging changes as the war grinds on. Last year, people were asking how to live through the war. Now, people ask about how to live after the war. We already have a sense of victory in our consciousness. Ukrainians, she adds, are learning how to defend borders. They're defending physical borders on the front line of the war and defending personal borders in their own lives. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Officials on Maui say more than 100 people are dead. More than a 1,000 others are still missing. But amidst so much pain and destruction, there have been moments of hope. In the chaos after the fire, one family was separated. The only way they could get back together was to rely on those around them. NPR's Lauren Summer went along on their journey. It's three days after the wildfire, and a long line of cars is stopped on the road. It's a checkpoint to get back to Lahaina, and John Picard just got turned away. We were told we could come into town and come back. It's a problem because he and his wife Miriam need to get home to their daughter. And my 13-year-olds 
She's on the other side of town for like two days now. John and his family were at home in Lahaina when the winds began to roar around their house. The fire was storming down and we literally ran to, to get out like everyone else. They had no warning to evacuate. The next morning, he walked up his street to see what was left. Everything we own in our house, not just our house is gone, but all the things that we that we love, our cameras and photos, everything. They went to stay with some friends whose house was still standing. Then he and his wife decided to drive out of town to central Maui to take their teenage son to the airport so he could get to school. Their daughter stayed with friends. The checkpoint had been open, but then officials closed it so the highway could be prioritized for emergency vehicles and utility trucks. John and his wife slept in their car, waiting to try again. But then they met Jennifer Kogan. No, I got you, I got you. Kogan leads snorkeling tours for Maui Reef Adventures. Now their boat that normally holds tourists is filled with boxes. A lot of water. We have fuel. Uh, we have suitcases. Which All morning, people have been showing up with trunk loads of donations bound for the fire survivors in Lahaina. Clothes, pineapples, 200 pounds of ice. I've seen so many people in the areas of the island that were not affected step up in a way that makes me really proud to be part of this island and part of this community. The other cargo will be John and Miriam. The crew is taking them to Lahaina. They both smile for the first time as they leave the harbor. We're on our way. We haven't been on our way. We've been frozen. Miriam sends a text to their daughter, who is processing all the loss by doing something. Right now, raising money. Yeah, she's raising money online for Maui Strong. She got her 500 already from a friend of mine. John says their teenage son saw a lot more of the fire's aftermath bodies sitting in cars. He also got severely depressed right away. He slept like 20 hours. The boat rounds a point, and there's Lahaina, a big black and gray scar where buildings once stood. The Coast Guard won't let anyone dock to offload supplies, but local residents have figured out a workaround. Two jet skis speed over. They're part of the local surfing community, normally towing surfers into giant waves on the North Shore. Today, they're grabbing cases of water. Two more bags and a Yeti cooler. On the beach, a dozen residents are waist deep in the water, grabbing supplies off the jet skis and making a human chain to cars on the road. She's going to. Okay, let's go. Now it's John and Miriam's turn to jump on board. Please keep in touch. Let us know how things go. At the beach, they run onto the sand and into the arms of their waiting daughter. Kogan and her crew turned their boat back around to get more supplies and whatever else is needed for their community. Lauren Summer, NPR News. And on tomorrow's program, blues singer Bobby Rush has a new album out. He caught up with our very own Mary Louise Kelly to reflect on coming of age during Jim Crow, how that shaped his music, and what keeps him going after decades in the business. Every day I get up is fun. Because when I think about what it could have been, I'm so thankful for what it is. That interview tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow took a tumble today. It fell more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent. The NASDAQ lost nearly one-and-a-quarter percent. The website Construction Coverage says Massachusetts is building new housing at a slower pace than most other states. It ranks, the new study ranks Massachusetts 41st in the construction of new homes. The report says the state authorized nearly six new units of housing per 1,000 existing units last year. That's about 17,700 new homes. It lags behind other states, but it is about 4% more than the state built in 2020. And the city of Cambridge is planning to restore the exterior of its historic city hall on Mass Ave. Restoration will include the gilding of the building's clock tower. The clock is original to the building and still wound by hand once a week. Cambridge City Hall was completed in 1890. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. In the forecast, more gray this evening and then overnight tonight. Look for some more showers off and on, temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Tomorrow's looking distinctly wet. Rain off and on could have a strong wind, some thunderstorms too. At least it'll be warm, though. Temperatures up in the mid-80s. The weekend is looking gorgeous. This is WBUR. President Biden invested billions of dollars in green energy. Much of that funding has brought jobs to Republican strongholds. Nine of the 10 top states to be the biggest beneficiaries are either red or purple states. So are Republican lawmakers warming to the Biden climate bill? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox and Nationals are still tied 1-1 in Washington, D.C. in the fifth inning. 71 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Scratching that hard-to-reach spot can sometimes feel so good. But other species, they've got to get creative. Dogs can roll on their backs. Birds can take a dust bath. But what do you do if you live underwater? Is skincare even a thing? For our series, Weekly Dose of Wonder, NPR's Carrie Fiable relays a new discovery involving humpback whales going to the undersea spa? Skincare is definitely a thing underwater. For one, the ocean is teeming with microbes. And then there are hitchhikers, like the barnacles and suckerfish, that love to latch onto whales and dolphins. The whales definitely don't want those barnacles on them. Like, the swim speed is reduced and it's weighing them down. Olaf Meinecke is a marine scientist with Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. And I've seen them eyeballing these soccer fish, and they don't like them at all. Whales are big, and their skincare challenges can be big too. Meineke says they need to constantly shed skin to ward off the threat of infection. But of course, you know, if you're just swimming through the ocean, the skin doesn't just easily come off. This is where a trip to a spa would be a big help. 
And that's exactly what Meineke came across while researching humpback migration along the Australian coast. He follows whales in a boat and attaches digital tags to them. The tags record where they go underwater and how they move. After a few hours, the tags pop off and get picked up. The data includes video footage from that whale's point of view. One day while reviewing some video, Meineke's team saw the humpback whales diving down to the bottom and sort of rolling over while pushing and scraping against the sand and gravel. I remember sitting there with my colleagues and we were laughing about it. We're like, what? What are the whales doing? Like, why are they rolling on the sand? It reminded him of a horse rolling on its back, except humpback whales are so huge that their body rolls seem to happen in majestic slow motion. But we thought maybe this is just a one-off. It wasn't a one-off. On later expeditions, videos showed different whales also spiraling through the sand about 12 stories underwater. And we could see the skin flying off. Some videos show little fish rushing in to help. And the whales were holding so still that this fish could just come and started picking off the skin. This had never been documented before in humpbacks. They named the behavior sand rolling. Now, when you look at mammals up on land, scratching and rolling and other skin care behaviors are well known. Bruce Schulte is a biologist at Western Kentucky University who studies elephants. He says elephants have to deal with biting bugs like mites and ticks and even sunburn. Obviously, they've got their trunks to spray water on themselves. But then they also do things like bathe, mud bath, rub on trees. Schulte says these skincare routines, while good for health, can have other functions. I think the interesting extension of this for both species is how much is this a social act? Elephants often wallow in mud together. And that's what Meineke found with his whales, too. In this recording, you can hear a male and a female humpback communicating after a visit together to the sand spa. In one of the expeditions, three male humpbacks fought over a female. And it was a very severe, like, heavy fighting, was ramming into each other. It looked definitely brutal. After an hour, they stopped fighting, dove down, and started sand rolling near each other. Meineke says if the whales got cut or scraped up in the fight, then the sand could help clean out the wounds. But he imagines it might also be a way for them to settle down and reset. Also a feel-good feeling, like, I really just had a strong fight with these guys, but now I'm just rolling in the sand, and then I just swim off and fight with the next guys. <laughs> Meineke wants to learn more about how the whales use sand rolling for their health or socially, and map the locations they prefer so these whale spas can be protected and preserved. Carrie Feibel, NPR News. Okay, we're used to hearing about a song of the summer, but viewership data shows there also may be a TV show of the summer this year. Remember Suits? That's right, that legal drama that aired nine seasons on USA Network like years ago? Well, it has become a breakout hit in July on Netflix. One possible reason might be one of its co-stars, of course. Meghan Markle played a paralegal on the show before her marriage to Prince Harry. Here she is greeting a new hire at the law firm where she works, played by Patrick J. Adams. I'm Rachel Zane. I'll be giving you your orientation. Wow, you're pretty. Good. You've hit on me. We can get it out of the way that I'm not interested. No, I'm sorry. I the ratings company Nielsen says Suits drew 18 billion minutes of viewing in July, which helped set a new record for the overall share of TV viewing taken up by streaming video. Here to talk about all of that is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. 
So what do you think it says about the TV industry that Suits is suddenly a hit on this platform? Well, I mean, I think it shows that people are starting to turn to streaming, and I'll talk about that in a second. Nielsen says the popularity of Suits and the kids' show Bluey on Disney Plus help boost viewers' time watching streaming, and at the same time, the viewing of what we call linear TV, these programs on traditional broadcast, cable, and satellite channels, mm -hmm. dip below 50% of all TV viewing for the first time. Now, Nielsen says this hike in streaming comes from library content. People are watching shows like Suits that aired somewhere else, but they're now on a streaming services stored library. And some TV executives have always said that streaming was gonna be the future of TV, Figures like this show, they just might be right. Interesting. Well, I am still curious about the timing of all this. I mean, even if this is about some Meghan Markle effect, why is a show that debuted on cable 12 years ago becoming popular again now? Well, the strikes by writers and performers in Hollywood over this summer have halted production, and that's left some people looking over to streaming for fresh material. Now, mm. I also think at a time when TV platforms are canceling shows quicker than ever, there's some comfort in starting a series knowing that there's nine seasons to enjoy if you like it. Now, Netflix featured Suits inside its app, which guaranteed that subscribers would be encouraged to view it, and that always helps with views. And it's a great series. It's about this talented but self-centered lawyer named Harvey Specter, played by Gabriel Mott, who hires a smart young guy to be his associate, even though he doesn't have a law degree. It's part Cinderella story, it's part legal procedural, it's part workplace drama, it's got a killer cast. We've got a clip of Patrick Adams as Mike Ross trying to talk Specter into hiring him, but Specter is a little hesitant. I'm inclined to give you a shot, but what if I decide to go another way? I'd say that's fair. And sometimes I like to hang out with people who aren't that bright, you know, just to see how the other half lives. <laughs> Touche. I mean, I don't want you, Eric, to make me want to watch Suits, okay? But I do think it is interesting to see the share of streaming viewing go up, even as services like Disney Plus or Netflix raise their prices. Do you think what those companies are doing could slow down the popularity of streaming? Well, it's definitely possible. I mean, the question is whether subscribers actually perceive that prices are being hiked. For example, Netflix eliminated a mid-price subscription fee and they're tamping down on password sharing. So that increases their revenue, but they're not explicitly hiking their fees. I really think these concerns are always gonna be outweighed if the streaming services can come up with multiple seasons of a high quality show like Suits, it's just TV comfort food at a time when the industry is about as turbulent as it's ever been. And who doesn't like comfort food? That is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you so much, Eric. Always a pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox and Washington Nationals are playing the rubber game of their three-game series in the Capitol right now. In the bottom of the fifth, Chris Sale was just replaced by Josh Winkowski. And uh, he's up against Patrick Corbin for the Nats. The score is still tied at one. In the forecast, we're going to have to wait yet another day before we see the sunshine. After a cloudy night tonight, we should have a soggy day tomorrow with a wind-driven rain at times, maybe thunderstorms off and on. Should feel more like August, though, in terms of the temperature. Could reach the low 80s around Boston for the first time this week. The weekend is looking promising. Saturday, mostly sunny for a change, up around 78 degrees. Then sunshine for a second straight day on Sunday could make it to about 84 degrees. 
70 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 5.30. It's been a year since President Biden signed major legislation to help address climate change. The Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest climate policy, climate action that the U.S. government has ever taken. We'll take a look at the Inflation Reduction Act and how it's reshaping the American economy and the fight against climate change. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hurricane Hillary has strengthened into a Category 2 storm as it barrels through the Pacific toward Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. It's already packing winds of 105 miles per hour as it approaches the popular tourist area of Los Cabos. Dave Pash is a forecaster with the National Hurricane Center. storm is likely to be nearing Baja California over the weekend, and by late in the weekend we could start seeing the outer effects of Hillary impacting the southwestern United States. He says Hillary is expected to dump up to half a foot of rain across parts of the Baja Peninsula through Sunday night. The heavy rainfall is also expected to impact southwestern states from Friday through early next week. In Mississippi, two white men are accused of attempted first-degree murder for chasing and shooting at a black FedEx driver after he dropped off a package at a home. But as Will Stribling of Mississippi Public Broadcasting tells us this morning, the judge declared a mistrial. On the stand on Wednesday, Vincent Fernando, a Brookhaven Police Department detective, admitted that he had not given prosecutors or defense attorneys a videotaped statement that police took from the victim, DeMontario Gibson. Circuit Court Judge David Strong said he had no choice but to declare a mistrial and that law enforcement withholding evidence during discovery is a new experience for him. In 17 years, I I don't think I've ever seen it happen, but it happened here. Gibson's attorney, Carlos Moore, has asked the Department of Justice to investigate the police department's conduct in this case. For NPR News, I'm Will Stribling in Jackson, Mississippi. Fewer people filed for unemployment benefits last week as the Labor Department continues to, or rather, labor market continues to show its resilience. Jobless claims remain at healthy levels despite high interest rates and elevated inflation. On Wall Street, stocks finish lower today. This is NPR. Military officials from a West African regional group are meeting this week to discuss a possible military intervention in Niger, where the country's president has been ousted in a coup. Michael Koloki has more. ECOWAS member states say they want a peaceful restoration of democracy in Niger, but the group is keeping the use of force as an option. Niger's military junta has said it is open to hold talks, but also previously warned there would be a swift retaliation to any armed intervention. The junta said it will prosecute the country's ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, for high treason and undermining national security following his interaction with foreign heads of state. Bazoum, together with his wife and son, have been detained in the country's presidential palace in the country's capital, Niamey, since the coup last month. For NPR News, I'm Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is drafting new regulations to rein in so-called data brokers. These are companies that make money by selling all sorts of personal information about millions of Americans. The director of the federal watchdog agency says he's worried 
about scammers using these various surveillance tools to target people. His agency is now crafting a new set of proposed rules with input from businesses. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower today. The Dow lost 290 points, down eight-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Police in Worcester are searching for two children they say were kidnapped by their mother earlier today. Police say 47-year-old Tiffany Cancel does not have legal custody of the children. The kids are identified as 11-year-old Joaquin Cancel and 9-year-old Avery. They're believed to be in a white Buick rendezvous with New Jersey license plates. The first black sheriff elected in Stratford County, New Hampshire, turned himself over to authorities today after he was charged with eight felonies by the state's attorney general. Sheriff Mark Brave says the investigation was politically motivated. Brave is accused of submitting personal expenses for reimbursement, falsifying evidence, and perjury. The sheriff is free on personal cognizance. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. In the forecast tonight, overcast skies, light rain dipping to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, warmer weather, but wetter, too, up around 83 degrees. Could be some windswept rain with thunderstorms tomorrow. The weekend, though, is looking dry and nice. In just the past few minutes, the Washington Nationals scored two runs to pull ahead of the Red Sox. It's now 3-1 in the bottom of the fifth in Washington. The time is 5.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. An entire city in northern Canada is facing an evacuation order today as the country continues to grapple with its worst wildfire season on record, with some 1,000 wildfires burning as of today. Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories, the province just north of Alberta, has issued an evacuation for all of the city's 20,000 residents. Rebecca Alty is the mayor of Yellowknife and joins us now. Mayor Alty, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So people there in Yellowknife were ordered to evacuate yesterday evening, but where do things stand now? So yes, the evacuation order was issued yesterday evening, and uh, the big purpose was we we only have one highway in and out of the community. We only have one road in and out of the community. And unfortunately, that's where the the fire is as well. Um, and so the highway is open right now because the conditions are good. It's still smoky, but folks are able to to pass by the highway. Um, so the fire is approaching. We issued the evacuation order. Mm. Probably kilometers worth of vehicles were were driving out yesterday. Again today. Um, flights have also begun because if you don't have a vehicle, um, for those who have uh, medical conditions, seniors, etc., like driving through this smoke is folks are doing it with N95 masks on. Oh, you're, you're going through. It was about four hours to make it uh, make it through this this 60 kilometer uh, section. I don't know what that would be in miles, but um, it's uh, 
it's been a, a tough, tough couple days. And I'd say a tough month. That's when the fire first started. But ever since Sunday, the fire has been advancing uh, towards the city. So advancing towards the city since Sunday, what can you tell us about the current state of the fires? How close are they to Yellowknife? They are 16 kilometers away from Yellowknife right now. And, um, oh, sorry, 15 kilometers. It did move one kilometer yesterday, but that was uh, better than the anticipated five kilometers that it was doing. Um, So it's it is coming. Um, there's a lot of work underway. I have to stress to to stop it, to slow the fire down. A lot of work on the ground we'd call fire breaks. And that's where you're basically cutting trees down, um, creating this 100 meter corridor where there'd be no trees. So when the fire approaches, um, it doesn't have anything to burn. Mm. The, the territorial government is also looking to drop a, a fire retardant line. So that's airplanes dropping water on the fire but other airplanes actually putting this fire retardant on the trees. So creating a number of things, um, hopefully also trying to do a controlled burn. Yeah. So these three lines of defense to slow the fire from actually reaching Yellowknife. But it will be, uh, you know, if we are able to do a controlled burn, that's a lot of smoke in the air. Um, the air quality, it just it's not healthy for folks to be be around. I mean, and just to put that into perspective for folks, we're talking about a little over nine miles away here. I want to ask you before we let you go in about the 30 seconds we have left, I know that you were born and raised in Yellowknife. Just as someone who grew up there, have you ever experienced anything of this magnitude before? No, no. The last um, two fires that were kind of big in our region were in 98 and 2014, but nothing um, that threatened Yellowknife so much that we even had to consider an evacuation, let alone actually issue an evacuation. So this is Yellowknife's first evacuation. And I think what makes it unprecedented as well is that we are the eighth community this Mm -hmm. week being isolated or sorry, evacuated. So it's um, It's it's a tough, tough week. Yellowknife Mayor Rebecca Alte, thank you so much for being with us and please stay safe. Thank you. Getting unfettered news about close-knit religious communities can be challenging if journalists are not part of the group. When it comes to ultra-Orthodox Jews, mainstream Jewish news organizations do provide coverage, but ultra-Orthodox media outlets often ignore contentious issues. Now, a new website focusing on that religious community offers news with an insider's perspective. John Kalish reports. The website Shtetl bills itself as the Haredi Free Press. The term Haredi refers to Jews who follow strict Jewish laws and reject much of modern secular culture. Shtetl takes its name from the Yiddish word for the small Jewish towns in Eastern Europe. The founder and editor-in-chief of Shtetl is a 37-year-old activist-turned-journalist named Naftuli Moster. He says the website will show that just like those small Jewish villages, the Haredi community is not monolithic and that a free press portrays its community warts and all. Many Haredi media outlets will tell you explicitly that they are overseen by a rabbinic advisory board. 
that tells them what can and cannot go in. Moster grew up in a Haredi family with 17 kids, and he says his years agitating over the alleged inadequacy of the yeshiva's secular education triggered death threats. They also brought angry attacks by the Haredi press, where such contentious issues as corruption, white-collar crime, and sexual abuse within the Haredi community seldom warrant coverage. Journalism in the Haredi community is a different animal. Rabbi Avi Shafran is the director of public affairs for Agudath Israel of America, the primary representative of Haredi Jews in the U.S. Their goal is to present accurate good news about the community, and they make no bones about that. Shtetl says its mission is to be a source of information that can hold the powerful accountable. So the website's sole staff reporter, Lauren Hakimi, has written about a security patrol leader pleading guilty to child sexual abuse and about anonymous ads for a family court judicial candidate. They said, elect this guy and he will side with us in family court matters. The advertisements said this judge will side with a more religious spouse. Samuel Heilman, a retired sociology professor from Queens College, thinks a radical change is underway in the Haredi community, fueled by the younger members' embrace of technology. All the great rabbis, they're not surfing the web. They don't know about a new website that opened up this afternoon, but young people do. And so they can go to places and see things that the old people can't even imagine exist. Fordham anthropologist Ayala Fader has followed the history of Haredi rabbis trying to control new communications technology. She says the smartphone is an unprecedented challenge for them. Because of smartphones, suddenly you had the entire Internet in your pocket and no one was looking in your pocket. Most yeshivas require parents to install software filters on their phones to prevent accessing objectionable content. But Naftuli Moster says many Haredi Jews have a way around that. Many people in the community have one smartphone that has that filter installed and another phone that doesn't. (laughs) And that's how they're able to really access anything on the Internet. Including... Shtetl.org. For NPR News, I'm John Kalish in New York. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Native rights leader Ada Deer died this week. In the 1970s, she helped lead a grassroots movement to restore federal recognition for her tribe, the Menominee Nation, and later became the first woman to lead the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Wisconsin Public Radio's Herp Kerwin has more on her life and legacy. Ada Deer grew up in a log cabin along the Wolf River on the Menominee Reservation in northeastern Wisconsin. It's an experience she talked about in a Wisconsin Public Radio interview in 2020. I absorbed the love of the land, love for the animals, uh, love for my tribal people. Federal recognition of Deer's tribe ended in 1954 when Congress passed the Menominee Termination Act. It was during a time called the Termination Era when lawmakers worked to end federal obligations to tribes and erase Native American rights. 
In the 60s, Deer joined protests around the sale of her tribe's lands. She founded a grassroots group called the Determination of Rights and Unity for Menominee Stockholders, or DRUMS. This organization lobbied Congress to restore the tribe's federal rights, leading to the Menominee Restoration Act of 1973 and an end to the termination era. Deer was the first woman to serve as the chair of the Menominee tribe after it was restored. Here's Deer again in 2020. One of the most important things that I've done with my life is to, first of all, fight for, be part of that struggle and help people become knowledgeable about their tribal responsibilities and that they could help in bringing about significant change. There were other first moments for Ada Deer. She was the first member of the Menominee Nation to graduate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1957. She later became the first Native American to earn a master's degree in social work from Columbia University. She went on to run unsuccessfully for Wisconsin Secretary of State and made a bid for Congress in 1992, becoming the first Native woman to do so in Wisconsin. A year later, President Bill Clinton appointed Deer as an assistant secretary in the Department of the Interior, making her the first woman to lead the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She returned to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to lead the American Indian Studies program in the early 2000s. Denise Wiaka is the current director of the program. She was hired by Deer and remained friends with her long after she retired. Wiaka said she would call Deer weekly for advice. At the end of the conversation, she would always ask me, well, Tell me something good now. (laughs) So, you know, it was so sweet how she would always change the, the mood of the conversation to something good. Wiaka described Deer as a whirlwind, someone who was always involved in many things. And she says Deer was an inspirational figure for Native Americans because she showed them that you could change things for the better. Last week, in honor of her 88th birthday, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers declared August 7th as Ada Deer Day in Wisconsin. Deer died in hospice on Tuesday. For NPR News, I'm Hope Kerwin in La Crosse, Wisconsin. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Nationals bats are pretty hot this afternoon. The Red Sox aren't. In the bottom of the six in the capital, it is now 6-1 Nationals. Celtics' schedule for the upcoming season is out. The seas open October 25th in New York against the Knicks. This is the first year that the NBA will host an in-season tournament. It starts November 10th for the Celts. Boston will compete against the Brooklyn Nets, Toronto Raptors, Orlando Magic, and the Chicago Bulls. The winner moves on to the next round in December. 70 degrees now in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kate Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing the classic musical Camelot. The love triangle of King Arthur, Guinevere, and Sir Lancelot. Tickets at kateplayhouse.com. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. 
Here's Hannah Ali. R.F. Kuang's new novel, Yellow Face, takes a satirical look at the publishing industry and white privilege. June is a white writer who wants to revive her lackluster career, and Athena is her successful Chinese peer with book deals and awards. When Athena dies in an accident, June steals Athena's latest unpublished manuscript and gets a new perspective on fame and success. In Yellowface, Kuang uses fast-paced prose to explore the concepts of race, identity, and envy. If you want a book that gives a new meaning to the phrase imposter syndrome, try Yellowface by R.F. Kuang. To get weekly book recommendations just like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Cruise ships are making a comeback. South Florida's cruise companies are buoyed by a surge in passengers, but they're still paying for the pandemic interrupting their business. From member station WLRN in Miami, Tom Hudson reports. This is what Port Miami's Terminal B sounded like in May of 2021. It was a beautiful day to cruise. The sun was shining. It was in the mid-80s with a slight breeze. Two ships sat dockside, but there were no crew members, no stevedores, no passengers. The cruise business was still closed because of COVID-19. And here's what Port Miami sounded like a couple of weeks ago as thousands of passengers lined up to board the Disney Magic for a five-day cruise. The cruise business has come, well, cruising back, stronger than it was before the COVID-19 virus shut down sailing, costing tens of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars. I'm thrilled to share with you this morning our strong second quarter results and another step change in the trajectory of our business. That's Jason Liberty, the CEO of Royal Caribbean Group based in Miami. He was speaking on a conference call after the company released its second quarter financial results last month. We not only delivered another outstanding quarter that significantly exceeded expectations, but are also increasing our full year earnings guidance by another 33%. The cruise operator expects this year's profits to be stronger than it predicted just a few months ago. And it's not alone in riding this wave of passenger demand. There was much to celebrate in the second quarter. This is Josh Weinstein, the CEO of Carnival Corporation based in Doral, Florida. We just hit all-time highs for bookings and customer deposits. And remarkably, we are still experiencing a phenomenal wave season, which started early, gained strength, and is still going strong midway through the year. And it was a similar message from Harry Summer, the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings in Miami, though the company's forecast was less than anticipated. We achieved record revenue of $2.2 billion in the second quarter, an increase of 33% over the same period in 2019. I think these companies have really been able to figure out how to run in a much more efficient way. This is Jamie Katz. She's a stock analyst at Morningstar. This time off has really given these management teams a way to think about how do we optimize revenue management. And I think that has permitted these companies to come back with really diplomatic pricing tactics. Diplomatic pricing. Instead of simply offering deep discounts to fill up the ships, package together amenities. 
This allows the cruise ships to add or subtract items based on demand. The more people buying, the fewer amenities included in the base price. And so much more. Strong demand has allowed the companies to keep prices up, and they need the cash. This trio of South Florida-based cruise giants have lost tens of billions of dollars combined since the beginning of the pandemic. All three were profitable in the second quarter, if you don't count the hundreds of millions of dollars they spent paying interest on loans. But they have to pay that interest, and it takes a big bite out of profits. Those loans kept the companies afloat when they weren't allowed to sail. Together, these three big cruise companies owe almost $70 billion to lenders. It's still massive, <laughs> still you know, much higher than it was pre-pandemic. Pete Trombetta is a senior analyst with Moody's, the credit rating agency. The companies have spent more paying interest on those loans this year than they have spent paying for fuel for their ships. They had to borrow to stay alive. So it's going to take time for them to start tackling that debt, but they're definitely on the right path. This big rebound of cruising is big for South Florida, with two of the top three busiest cruise ports in the world. Already this year, the number of passengers moving through Port Everglades is up 77% compared to a year ago. The Fort Lauderdale port has been renovating a terminal that will be dedicated to Disney in time for the winter cruise season later this year. And this comes after renovating a separate terminal earlier this year for Royal Caribbean's celebrity brand, says director Jonathan Daniels. We're actually hiring additional people. We're creating our own cruise operations department, which the port has never had. More passengers mean more revenue for Miami-Dade and Broward counties in Florida, the owners of the ports. Cruise passenger revenue in Miami fell 95% when ships were ordered to stop sailing. It already tops $100 million this fiscal year, on par with 2019, the year before the pandemic put a stop to cruises. Now to a developing story in South Florida, where two cruise ships carrying passengers with coronavirus have been allowed to dock. For some on board. Another cruise ship with COVID positive passengers is docked at Port Miami. Royal some of the early COVID cases and headlines came from cruise ships. After weeks in limbo at sea, overnight, two Holland American. Some ships, ships were quarantined and not allowed to dock for days over fears of passengers spreading the virus on shore. The Coast Guard is currently monitoring more than 50,000 crew members on various ships that are in U.S. waters. Thousands of crew members remained on board other ships for sometimes months after the industry was ordered to suspend operations. It added up to plenty of negative publicity at the time, but it has not hurt the optimism now from the industry's CEOs. We are clearly gaining momentum on an upward trajectory. Clearly, the very healthy demand environment we are seeing is quite encouraging. This acceleration demand, the record booking levels, really are increasing our optimism about 2024. In order for that optimism to be realized, the industry needs to continue attracting first-time cruisers and converting them into repeat customers. Worldwide, one out of every three cruise passengers are at least 60 years old, but the average age for passengers sailing in the Caribbean, where ships from South Florida travel, is in the mid-40s. Joe Chile is an assistant dean at Florida International University and creator of the school's cruise line operations management degree. You're starting to see somewhat of a trend of let's lure a younger demographic here. And that's not related to the family cruises with all of the, you know, water slides and go-karts and things like that on it. Shareholders certainly are optimistic about the fortunes of the firms. Norwegian stock was up almost 80% in the first half of the year, 
Carnival and Royal Caribbean shares more than doubled in price during that same time period. In fact, Royal Caribbean stock has almost returned to its pre-pandemic price. For NPR News, I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. Ecuadorians head to the polls this weekend for an unprecedented election in the once quiet country. One candidate, a former investigative journalist, was just assassinated. Now, one of his journalist colleagues is stepping in as a replacement, but he's wearing a bulletproof vest and helmet for protection, even for TV interviews. We'll have more on that election tomorrow on Morning Edition. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for being with us this evening. The clouds are sticking around overnight tonight and letting loose with a good deal of rain tomorrow. Some intermittent downpours. Temperatures should be on the rise, though, breaking into the low 80s. Saturday and Sunday, sunny and dry for a change. Highs in the upper 70s Saturday, the mid-80s on Sunday. The Nationals' bats are pretty hot this afternoon. Red Sox, not so much. It's getting painful down in Washington now. The Nationals are leading the Red Sox 9-1 to in the bottom of the sixth. Follow the news each day on the WBOR app. It's one tap to listen, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBOR app in your app store today. This is WBOR. I'm WBOR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBOR FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Fire-ravaged neighborhoods in Maui are now filled with toxic contaminants from incinerated buildings and cars. We expect to see much higher amounts of compounds like chlorine and nitrogen and metals like lead and arsenic and cadmium. Today is Thursday, August 17th. This is All Things Considered. The latest from Maui coming up. Also, North Korea is likely to be a major topic when President Biden hosts his Japanese and South Korean counterparts at Camp David tomorrow. The U.S. puts a spotlight on North Korea's human rights violations. In New York's Adirondack Mountains, a bipartisan group has reduced political polarization and boosted civility all while helping preserve hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness. It's one past six. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Georgia, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office says it's working to track down threats against members of the grand jury that indicted former President Trump this week. Georgia law requires the names of grand jurors be made public on indictments of Sam Greenglass. A member station WABE reports. In Georgia, there's no mechanism for sealing the names of grand jurors, even in high-profile cases. This week, the personal information of some jurors was posted on far-right message boards. Pete Scandalakis is with the prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia. He says transparency is a bedrock of the justice system, but it's worth asking whether it's time to modify this law. I think we owe it to our citizens to figure out how it is we can keep the open court system and yet protect the interest of the citizens. A spokesperson for the Fulton County Sheriff's Office says the agency takes grand juror safety very seriously and is responding quickly to credible threats. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. The Justice Department says a Canadian woman has been sentenced to nearly 22 years in prison for mailing threatening letters containing the poison ricin to then-President Trump at the White House. Pascal Ferrier pleaded guilty earlier this year to sending the letters to Trump and also to eight law enforcement officers in Texas since September 2020. With the death toll from the devastating wildfire on Maui reaching 111, an entire city in Canada's Northwest Territories is being evacuated. NPR's Nathan Rott reports a fast-moving wildfire is threatening to reach Yellowknife by the weekend. Canada is experiencing its biggest wildfire season on record, with major fires burning forests from the country's east to west. The Northwest Territories is a largely rural and indigenous area in the country's far north and has been experiencing hundreds of wildfires. Local officials made the decision to evacuate the region's largest city, Yellowknife, population 20,000, with a deadline of midday Friday as a series of wildfires have raced closer. Limited road access and infrastructure is hampering firefighting efforts and prompted the rare citywide evacuation. Without rain, fire officials warned flames could reach the city by Saturday. Nathan Rott, NPR News. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says it will be up to officials in Kyiv to decide when conditions are appropriate to join any peace talks with Moscow. Russia invaded Ukraine nearly a year and a half ago. NPR's Rob Schmidt says Stoltenberg was responding to a comment made this week by his chief of staff. Stoltenberg made the comment at a conference in Norway. On Tuesday, Stoltenberg's chief of staff, Stian Jensen, remarked Ukraine may in the end give up territory to Russia as part of a deal to end the war. Stoltenberg said only Ukraine can decide when conditions are right for negotiations and what is an acceptable solution. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of a Boston-based LGBTQ plus rights organization is calling on the Roman Catholic Diocese of Worcester to rescind a new policy before the start of the school year. The policy prohibits students and staff in the diocese schools from using pronouns, clothing, bathrooms, or locker rooms that do not align with the sex they were assigned at birth. Here's WBUR's Fausto Menard. The diocese says the policy was implemented to ensure uniformity throughout its school system. Marion Duddy Burke with Dignity USA says children who identify as transgender or non-binary are more likely to be bullied or depressed. She says this new policy could make things worse. As children do the very important work of identity formation, many are going to question sexual orientation or gender identity, and they have to know 
that they are going to be respected and loved no matter who they finally determine themselves to be. The diocese says the policy prohibits harassment, threats, or violence against students based on their perceived sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The Massachusetts School Library Association and the American Civil Liberties Union are supporting a bill to prevent books from being removed from public libraries due to political interference. The so-called book ban legislation was filed today in the state Senate. It calls for a review process when someone objects to material in a public library. The local school committee would make the final decision. Candidates for jobs as certified nursing assistants next year will be able to take the state's written certification exam in a language other than English. Quincy State Senator John Keenan pushed for the measure in the new Senate budget or the state budget. He says the state shuts out many qualified candidates from jobs as a certified nursing assistant because they don't know enough English. One woman, for instance, I can't remember what country she was from, but talked about passing the practical examination without any problems at all and then really struggling to pass the written examination because she um, struggled with English and she clearly had the skills. The law requires Spanish and Chinese written exams to be offered first. Keenan is urging the Department of Public Health to offer more languages as soon as possible. In the forecast app again this evening, some showers tonight holding to the mid to upper 60s right now, 69 degrees in the Boston area. Tomorrow is looking distinctly lousy. Rain off and on all day could have a strong wind, some thunderstorms possible. At least it'll be warm, though, temperatures in the mid-80s. Then for the weekend, the on the other hand, it's looking gorgeous. Sunshine both Saturday and Sunday, highs on either side of 80. Again, 69 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The burn zone in Lahaina remains closed off as officials undertake search and recovery. But shortly after the fire, some residents of Lahaina were able to see what was left of their homes. Anthony LaPuenta II found his home reduced to a field of ash. He says the sight was shocking as well as the smell. It smelled a lot of wood camping type of wood, but also a lot of like, chemical smells. If anybody's ever been around like burning tire or gas, um, you can kind of get a hint. Those chemical odors are one sign of how toxic the entire burn area is, even after the flames have been extinguished. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer is on Maui and has been talking with experts about the risks. Hi, Gabriel. Hello. So tell us how critical of a concern are these toxic contaminants right now in the burn zone? Yeah, they're a major concern here. And and they're one of the reasons why getting people back into Lahaina has gone so slowly. Uh, One factor in this is just how hot the fire burned. Hawaii's governor said it reached 1,000 degrees. So something that's that hot is not going to burn just wood, but also things like asphalt and, and insulation and plumbing. And that's in addition to all this plastic and rubber and carpet. And what happens when those kinds of materials burn? There's a really big concern about asbestos and lead because much of Lahaina was built more than 50 years ago before we (laughs) stopped using that stuff in our buildings. And there are more nasty chemicals in the smoke from these urban wildfires. Um, I spoke with Amara Holder with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and she's done research into what's in the smoke from urban wildfires versus some that mostly burn trees. 
We expect to see much higher uh, amounts of compounds like chlorine and nitrogen and metals like lead and arsenic and cadmium. We would expect greater amounts of gases like hydrogen chloride or hydrogen cyanide to be emitted from these types of fires than you would see from a regular old forest fire. And how dangerous are those compounds? Like, could people be harmed just by, say, touching the contaminated ash? Yeah, well, the biggest danger comes from ingesting or or breathing in the toxic chemicals. Uh So that means that the really acute risks go way down once the fire's out and the smoke is dissipated. But lots of the emissions that start out as airborne particles and smoke end up settling back down into ash and soot, and they cling to surfaces, they run off into the water. And that means people could be exposed over and over for a really long time, which is exactly what health officials are worried about. A lot of these chemicals are associated with cancer and lung disease, and heavy metals like lead and arsenic can cause heart disease and and neurological problems, too. And how do you go about cleaning all of that up? Well, it's going to be a huge job. Um, That ash, which blankets everything in Lahaina, and a lot of the soil that it's sitting on might have to be treated as hazardous waste, which could mean packing it into steel drums and shipping it off island for special storage. I mean, my God, that sounds like it could take a really long time. And, and I imagine that must be frustrating for residents who want to go and see what's left. Yeah, I, I asked Diana Felton about this. She's the former Hawaii state toxicologist who's now part of the leadership at the State Department of Health. And she says the burn zone is off limits for good reasons. We completely understand people's urge, and it really is a need to get back and see what has become of their homes or their businesses. But also, there is no room for more illness and injury related to this event. She said eventually residents will be able to be in the burn area safely once cleanup has made some progress and with proper gear. But she says that's still a ways off. We've been speaking with NPR's Gabriel Spitzer. Thank you, Gabriel. You're welcome. These days, America's civic fabric is fraying. From local school board meetings to Congress, shouting often overwhelms real conversations. But there is a place in upstate New York where people are actively resisting that trend. NPR's Brian Mann takes us there. To understand the civic experiment underway in New York's massive Adirondack Park, we have to go back to a time when things were really ugly. In the 1990s, a CBS cameraman captured a violent confrontation. An environmental activist was attacked by a local government leader named Maynard Baker. Go back wherever you come from, but get out of here. Out of our lives and out of our business. The Adirondack Park is six million acres. Small towns here are surrounded by big chunks of heavily regulated land. Historian Phil Terry says the fight over environmental rules turned dangerous. There was an attempt to set the park agency headquarters on fire. One of the park agency staff members had bullets flying around his car one day. In a lot of ways, the Adirondacks then resembled America today. Conspiracy theories and threats of violence were commonplace. I had protesters and pickets all over the Adirondacks. Former New York Governor George Pataki, a Republican, lives now in the park. He says the stakes were high. When he took office, huge tracts of privately owned land in the park were being eyed by developers. They wanted to build resorts and waterfront vacation homes. Pataki unveiled an ambitious environmental plan to keep that from happening. Here he is speaking in 2005. This brings our total open space conserved to over 900,000 acres, an area bigger than the entire state of Rhode Island. 
Pataki says the battle lines then were pretty much like what we see now across the U.S., pro-business versus pro-environment, urban versus rural, people looking for agreement versus those who wanted to fight. He says his message to furious locals was simple. Let's start talking. Give me a chance, and I think we can make this work both for the environment and for the economy. People here say that moment started a gradual shift in the park's culture that took root over the next 20 years, creating an opening for a new generation of activists. Our agenda is simply to have civil discourse. Zoe Smith is an environmental activist who sits on the board of the Adirondack Park Agency. That's the state governing body locals once tried to burn down. She lives here in Saranac Lake, one of the towns inside the park, and volunteers for a group called the Common Ground Alliance that formed to do the slow, hard work of building bridges. There's a lot of, of long conversations that happen, phone calls after hours, and, and I've been there as well, you know, sort of on the ledge. This is too difficult. This relationship is broken. This issue is too hard to face. People here say this local work has been complicated by forces now tearing at America's civil society. The park's small towns backed Donald Trump twice, and voters here have given landslide victories to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Trump ally who frequently amplifies conspiracy theories. In other parts of the U.S., bitter national divisions have shattered communities. But here, local government leaders like Jerry Delaney have chosen to keep talking. I feel I'm a moderate, but oftentimes I'm told I'm very right of moderate. Delaney's a town official, a former logger and corrections officer who describes himself as a Trump voter. He's also emerged as one of the leading pro-development voices working with the Common Ground group. There's no good to tear our communities apart. We're not going to win by fighting. As long as people are listening to us, we still have a chance. Local leaders like Delaney wound up supporting those big land conservation deals. In exchange, small towns got big pots of economic development money and funding for infrastructure. Historian Phil Terry says while America grew more fractious, the Adirondacks found ways to compromise. I think there's been a lot of good faith effort on the part of people on both sides to try to talk things out. Don't yell at each other, talk to each other. Everyone interviewed for this story said the Adirondack experiment has been successful so far, but also messy. They say the peace here often feels fragile, shaken by occasional lawsuits and by angry flare-ups on social media. But Zoe Smith with the Common Ground Alliance says people here keep talking, in part because they know how bad things can be when neighbors turn against neighbors. I think people don't want to go back there. They remember it. When you hear people talk about the, war, the Adirondack Wars and the Adirondack Battles, there are very few people who want to engage in that again. So far, nearly a million acres of wild forest and lakes have been protected here with local buy-in and local input. Makes you wonder what could be done in other parts of the U.S. if people started talking again rather than making threats and shouting each other down. Brian Mann, NPR News in New York's Adirondack Park. North Korea is likely to be a major topic when President Biden hosts his Japanese and South Korean counterparts at Camp David on Friday. On the eve of that summit, the U.S. put a spotlight on North Korea's human rights violations, chairing a Security Council meeting on that subject. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the Security Council must continue to speak out against injustices in North Korea, known as the DPRK. She says human rights violations there have an impact on regional security. Colleagues, we cannot have peace without human rights, and the DPRK is a case in point. 
This was the first such meeting in six years. China's ambassador objected to discussing matters that he says should not be on the Security Council's agenda. Russia's ambassador called it a shameless attempt by the U.S. to advance its political agenda. But one North Korean defector described how the lack of human rights in the country is fueling North Korea's illicit weapons program. Ishak Kim says at a young age, he was forced to work in the fields, and most of the grain he grew went to the military. The government turns our blood and sweat into luxurious life for the leadership and missiles that blast our hard work into the sky. He told the Security Council that the government is spending its money on weapons instead of feeding its people. We used to think that the money spent on just one missile could feed us for three months. But the government doesn't care and is only concerned with maintaining their power. U.N. officials say that COVID-19 restrictions have made matters worse. Volker Turk, who's the U.N.'s top human rights official, says he's now worried about the fate of thousands of North Koreans who could be forced back into the country and subjected to torture and detention. I therefore urge all states to refrain from forcibly repatriating North Koreans and to provide them with the required protections and humanitarian support. He didn't mention China by name, but many defectors have been living there, and deportations were halted when North Korea closed off the border at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Diplomats are worried that the deportations may soon resume. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Today on Wall Street, the Dow took a tumble. It fell more than eight-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ also lost ground. The S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent. The NASDAQ was down nearly one-and-a-quarter percent. The city of Cambridge is planning to restore the exterior of its historic city hall on Mass Ave. The restoration will include the gilding of the building's clock tower. The clock is original to the building. It was still or is still being wound by hand once a week. Cambridge City Hall was completed in 1890. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In Washington, D.C., the Red Sox train has finally showed up. In the top of the seventh, Luis Urias hit a grand slam, and then Rafael Devers hit a two-run homer. Sox are now losing by just two runs. It's 9-7 Nationals. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to offering eco-friendly options that are sustainably made and safe for your home and the environment. Locations at circlefurniture.com. Looks like we'll have to wait one more day before we see the sunshine. After a cloudy night tonight, we should have a wet day tomorrow, a wind-driven rain off and on, maybe thunderstorms. Temperatures on the rise, though, could hit the low 80s for the first time this week, around Boston anyway. And then for the weekend, Saturday, mostly sunny for a change, around 78 degrees. Sunshine for a second straight day on Sunday could make it to about 84. 69 degrees now in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. 
from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Two blocks north of Baltimore's Penn Station, there's a movie house now known as the Charles Theater. Hello. In a previous era, this building housed a venue called the Famous Ballroom. There were plastic stars and plastic moons and plastic clouds in the ceiling. There was canopy that looked like a circus tent. It was a dance hall. From the mid-1960s into the early 80s, nearly every Sunday from 5 p.m. onward, the famous ballroom was reserved for concerts put on by Baltimore's Left Bank Jazz Society. These were major shows. They brought in Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. We would do Art Blakey one week, Count Basie the following week, Hard Silver the next week, Lee Morgan. In the lobby, I met John Fowler, a charter member of the Left Bank Jazz Society. I'm not a mathematician, but that's somewhere around 700 concerts. They got so many big-time artists to come to Baltimore because, well, for one, it was very convenient by train. The Left Bank also insisted the artists got paid for their work on time. One of the things that we prided ourselves on, nobody ever left Baltimore without their money. And to hear John Fowler tell it, the vibe was unmatched. There were about 100 tables set out. Sometimes families brought entire Sunday dinners. Fried chicken, crab cakes, homemade potato salad, fifths of liquor, you could bring everything with you. We had a lady who sold baked goods, cake, pies, cookies, all of that. We sold beer, potato chips, and pretzels. That helped bring in an audience that was both young and old, black and white, unusually diverse for its time. They're jazz fans, we don't give a damn. You know, they could be green. Long as you got the price of admission, we don't care. A diverse and discerning audience. Gimmicks didn't work here in Baltimore. You had to play. When you got a standing ovation in the ballroom, you have really played your heart out. For the volunteers of the Left Bank Jazz Society, that was enough motivation to keep promoting shows in Baltimore for about 40 years in total. Some happened at other venues, but nothing was quite like a Sunday at the famous ballroom. And just know that there are 800 people in here who are having the time of their life. There's five guys on the stage who are playing some of the best music in the history of the world. And the fact that you had a small part in helping that to happen. The thing is, a lot of those concerts were recorded, mostly for the private archives of the Left Bank and for the artists themselves. Until a few years ago, only a handful of them were released as commercial albums by record labels. But hardcore jazz fans knew the tapes were there. And one of those fans is a record producer who grew up less than an hour away from Baltimore in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. It's truly historic, an amazing story. Zev Feldman has made a career out of finding archival records of jazz greats. For him, the raw material can't just be good, it has to be great. It's like fire on gasoline. I leap out of bed in the morning. I'm constantly researching with archives all around the world, trying to find the special recording, not just any recording, but something that's really 
meaningful. Feldman makes the greatest of his finds into deluxe limited edition albums. He's done this for over a decade with a number of record labels and has already put out three recordings from the Left Bank archives. This year, he's helped produce three more albums, and each was recorded, at least in part, at the famous ballroom in Baltimore. We're unearthing history here, but happened. And he loves it. I do. Feldman, Fowler, and I sat down, feet away from where these iconic shows used to happen, to talk about these new releases. First up, a recording of the legendary saxophonist Sonny Stitt from the fall of 1973. <laughs> This is a, a really remarkable tape. Sonny Stitt was a pioneer, one of the most amazing gunslingers, if you will, in jazz with dexterity and the way he played, and he was a master. Sonny Stitt being a local artist, for his children, the left bank performances were really important, and this was the chance that they would have an opportunity to go see their father play, so become a family outing. So these shows are really special, and it's a really testament of the genius of Sonny Stitt. We booked him on nine different occasions. Nine different occasions, yes. wow. Yes. So what do you remember about Sonny Stitt as a performer, as someone who was in those spaces? Unmatchable. When he came to town, every local horn player in the city showed up. They all stood at the back of the ballroom listening to the master. In Baltimore, you say Sonny Stitt, you got a packed audience. Feldman takes another newly pressed LP out of his bag. A recording of the organist Shirley Scott and her band from 1972. This is a tour de force performance from one of the pioneers of soul jazz, if you want to call it that. She was a legendary organ player. This performance from 1972 captures her live. I think Shirley Scott is one of the greats. I don't think we get a chance to talk about her as much, so I feel like Why these do you releases... think that is, though? Why do you think that someone like a Shirley Scott is not as well known? Women caught hell back in the day, especially in jazz. And if you stood up for yourself, you know, you got that bad reputation as being hard to deal with. You could be as, as good on your instrument as, as the next guy, but because he was a man, he got better treatment than you got. The third recording that's coming out was made in the mid-60s when pianist Walter Bishop Jr. came to Baltimore. We all talked about how he too was an undersung master from the bebop era. Really, we talked about a lot of the giants who came through this lobby. There were many, many stories. It was only after that that John Fowler got up and pointed out where exactly the famous ballroom used to be. The ceiling of this building would have been the flooring of the ballroom. So the ballroom would have been all the way up there, yes. above the ceiling that we are seeing yes. today. And slightly to the left. Fowler told me he'd only been here one other time since the early 80s when the famous ballroom fell into disrepair. The high ceilings, movie posters, and popcorn machines that we saw gave no hint of the legendary Left Bank concerts that once happened here. And this part of Baltimore City has changed too. It's great to be here, but 
there's nothing here that would kick in that memory other than the, the address 1717 North Charles Street. I mean, it's completely, there was no crepe restaurant next door to the ballroom when we had the concerts here. So there's very little other than the fact that I know what happened upstairs. John Fowler knows what happened upstairs. He was there. He hopes that as these recordings are released, more people will be able to experience what happened here too. The new albums are from Sonny Stitt, Shirley Scott, and Walter Bishop Jr. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Washington, D.C. It's the top of the eighth inning. The Sox have finally warmed up. They've narrowed the Nationals' lead. It's now the Nats 9, the Red Sox 7. Cloudy overnight tonight, light rain dipping to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, warmer weather, and it should be wet. Up around 83 degrees, though. And then look for sunny skies moving in over the weekend. It's now 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.